sleep. She's so tan. Zero percent chance. I, <laughs> I'm getting laser hair removal, so yeah. I'm not allowed to be out in the sun for two weeks after, else it's like hyperpigmentation. Ooh, so right. I have to be super duper careful, wearful. But I just got back from Florida, and the so I did. I was doing a show there, and also my parents happened to have a place down there, so I got to spend a week with my parents, which was really really nice. Everyone's dream. Everyone's. GD dream. If you get along with your parents, I get along with my parents. I love my parents. I do if you too. don't, I'm yeah. so sorry. Come to my family. We'll take you in. I love you. Carrie and I went and did an escape room together with some friends. We did. And we escaped. Spoiler alert. It's the first alert. time we did an escape room together. Is it? We've seen each other in a lot of immersive shows. So I feel like. We've never done an escape room together. We've never done an escape room together. Did we do anything like that? No. 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 Um, we were like escaping the apocalypse. And Carrie made it pretty clear to everyone from the beginning. She was not there to make friends. I can't listen. I didn't come here to make friends. I and came that's here how to win. she made it clear. She said to everyone, "I'm not here to make friends." Which I think you should start every escape room, especially if they're strangers, by telling everyone in the room that. I correction. You should start every human interaction. That's my actually favorite <laughs> thing do to love do. That. So, I was trying to like cover up what Koa was saying to you because I wanted to wait to explain the story, which is that a few days ago, Koa looked up at Matt and I and said, "I want to die." And we said, what? And like both of us like turned red and looked at each other and kind of like we're like, what? And he repeated, I want to die. And he said it really kind of sad. And I said, Koa, I don't know what you're saying. And then he got really, really teary. And he said, I want to die. And I did not know how to handle it. He's two. What in the world? Where did he get this? I was like, I don't really say that. I would never say that kind of thing in front of him. Where did he get it? He obviously doesn't know what it means, but the attitude made you feel like he did. And then we kind of just ignored it, and he seemed really sad. And the next day, he did it again. And cue the same feelings. And it was said really well. Like, we couldn't figure out if it could be anything else. But I also didn't want to repeat it back to him mm. and be like, did you say do you want that you want to die? I don't know why. I just didn't. I. Mm. Why did he? Okay. So I'm just, like texting friends, freaking out, being like, what to do if you have a suicidal two-year-old? Like, what's the situation? Mm. What's the protocol? <laughs> I wouldn't jump. I wouldn't jump. Put him I in therapy go right D. away. I wouldn't go A to D suicidal baby. I was like, Koa, you have a lot to live for. Anyway. um, <laughs> We could do it. We end up. In a situation where there was a pen on a piece of paper and he gestured to it the other day and said, I want to die. And I was like, you want to what? And he's like, I want to die. And he grabbed the pen and I said, you want to draw? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, that doesn't sound at all similar, dude. Can you say? And then I said to him, can you say draw? And he just looked me square in the face and said, die. And that's how he says draw is die. And when he was getting teary eyed, it was because his his stuff is up. Like we never have like markers and stuff out because that's a disaster waiting to happen. So 
he was asking, I want to draw. And we were not proactively getting him any of his drawing materials. So he was getting teary eyed and repeating, I want to draw. But it just sounded like I want to die. That one, I'm so sorry for the existential crisis that put you through. It was bananas. I I want to die. I was so happy. When I figured out what it was. When he first said I wanted to And I had to text like 12 people that I had gone to in tears and been like, I don't know what to do about this thing he's saying. And then I was like, you guys, it's draw. He just wants to draw. And since then, he, we've been letting him draw day and night. He's just been drawing constantly. And what can I say? He's a genius. (laughs) Can't really speak very well, but genius. I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that story. Do you know why? Mm. Because it relates to my story. Oh, my God. Was that a segue? It was a segue, which it feels pretty quick. But first, we should introduce ourselves. Okay. My name is Carrie Ipema. I'm Quinlan Posner. And you're listening to... Truly. Darkly. Creepily. Now, put your helmet on. Jump on that segue. And And here. Here. We we go. go. Oh, almost. Um, Okay. So, I'm doing this story. Do you remember you sent me that link a while ago that said weird mysteries? Yes. I had a bunch. I chose one. Oh, awesome. Yes. Um... So I don't want to say exactly what it is. Ooh. But it's about the Pollock family. Okay. Pollock Pollock. I don't want to say Jackson Pollock. It might be Pollock. I th- I feel like I would say Pollock. P O L L O C K. That's how I would pronounce that word. Pollock. Okay, great. I'm no pronunciation, but I would say Pollock. <laughs> say Pollock. Okay. So this is start with the Pollock family. So Get comfy, girl. Get comfy. Buckle in. So John Pollock is the father, and he's from Bristol. He's born in 1920, and this is relevant for later, but he's raised in the Church of England religion, but converts to Catholicism later in his life. Florence Pollock, his wife, she grew up as a member of the Salvation Army. Have you heard that that's a church? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I just figured it was a place to buy discount items that they're kind of sketchy about how they feel about oh, gay marriage. Oh, they're super related to... Yes. Mm-hmm. Accurate. Um, but they convert... But she converted to Catholicism to marry John. So they get married. They have some different... So even though John is raised Catholic and... In Catholicism, in Catholicism, <laughs> you don't believe in reincarnation, but John did. Oh, John believed in reincarnation. Great. His wife did not. It's not a Catholic belief. Apparently, John read about reincarnation at the age of nine and was... My ears started ringing. That was so crazy. <gasps> Someone's thinking about me. Someone or just got reincarnated <gasps> as oh my an God. earwig. Do you think God is like, don't talk about it? <laughs> don't yeah, reveal our like, secrets. Don't do it. Or she. We shouldn't. I don't like to say God is a he. No. God is a woman. Ariana Grande. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> what if God was one of us? Do, 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 do. Okay, so John reads about reincarnation at the age of nine, and he's like, this is a dope idea. I'm into this. I want this to be real. And he prayed, dear God, it's me, John Pollock. Okay? It's me from before. Tell me, prove to Introduce me. Introduce me to Margaret. <laughs> Introduce me to Margaret, dear God, it's me, Margaret. Dear God, it's me, John, not Margaret. Dear God, it's me. It's only two people ever 
we're talking well, to God. Just so you know, I say it often. <laughs> Dear God, it's me, Carrie, from before. <laughs> Dear God, it's me, John, from before. I was in Church of England. I'm now a Catholic. I don't know how you feel. Hopefully, same Z's, right? I really would love reincarnation to be super duper real. I want you to prove to me that it is. So he's praying from a young age. He's getting it done. And he basically, what I loved about the article that re- that I read is it said he prayed that reincarnation would be real so that he would be right and the priests would be wrong. Oh, God, that's such a good reason. So I, I, on a very, on a cellular level, I vibe with John. I really do. I 100%. So, so the couple, they're getting it in, in England, Catholics, they have two boys, okay, mm-hmm. and then they have their first girl, so their third child, first girl, her name is Joanna Pollock, um, and she's born in 1946, and then five years later, that's math, five years later, Jacqueline, her sister, is born. 51. 51, baby. Math right back at 40. you, bitch. Game on. Game over, son. So <laughs> we got Joanna and Jacqueline. So Joanna's older. Joanna is like a mother to Jacqueline. Joanna is one of those cool girls that wears a lot of costumes, writes her own plays, performs in it. Do you know of anyone who did that as a kid? Raising my hand. <laughs> Both of us. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. Both girls like to comb people's hair, especially their father's. Beautiful. Beautiful. Young cosmetologists in the making. Beauty school dropout. Do, do, do. So you mentioned summer love and now this. It's, yeah. all, it's a mitzvah. It's a grease theme. It's a grease theme. Um, so Joanna would do this thing where she would tell her dad that she was never going to grow up. Ooh. She had premonitions of never growing up and she would say, I will never grow up. Um Jacqueline, the younger of the two, when she was three, she fell in a bucket. I don't know if she fell. (laughs) So sorry, but (laughs) it says in later that she fell on a bucket. But I'm like, what is going on? It's like a really less scary fall in a well story. (laughs) She's just standing in a bucket (laughs) and just falls. Um, So Jacqueline, at the age of three, she falls in a bucket and she gets a small gash over her right eye near the end of her nose. Right. So she has a gash. The scar, it was lightly depressed and it was visible, especially during the winter. Right. Jacqueline, the younger, also. Why especially during the winter? I can't picture why that is. I guess it got cold. So maybe like the red or something. Okay. She also had a dark birthmark on the left side of her waist. So those were some two marks on her. Her parents, John and Florence, had a milk and delivery or grocery business. So the two girls were essentially raised by their mother's mother, so their maternal grandmother. Mm -hmm. Okay. Whoa, what? The delivery business is that hectic? It was busy. They had shit to do, honey. Good. On May 7th, 1957, Joanna was 11 and Jacqueline was 6. Both girls were walking with a family friend to church. And there was a woman. I never got her name, but there was a woman who was in the midst of a personal crisis. And her kids were being forcibly taken away from her. So she decides to kill herself commit suicide by taking a bunch of aspirin and phenobarbitone and driving behind a car. So witnesses say they see this woman driving erratically and she heads, her car goes directly towards the girls and the family friend and she bears down on them. 
and she runs into the two young girls. Um, Wait, so she suicide overdosed. Suicide overdose. And then got in a car? And Yeah, got in a car. Weird. Super weird. She runs into Joanna and Jacqueline. The girls could not escape because there was a wall nearby, and they crashed into them, and it was said they flew into the air like cricket balls, and they were killed immediately. Just holy guacamole. Holy guacamole. So that was in 1957. Who says that? That they were thrown into the air like cricket balls. It was 1957. I don't People know if you were totally... need to liken children's bodies to cricket balls. I guess they really were talking ever. about how, like, it just happened so quick and it was like... Boom. Boom. Immediately. And how with ease. Okay, so witnesses saw the kids died immediately. Obviously, mom and dad, John and Florence, are so fucking devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, Florence's... What is the word I'm trying to think of? Recovery, not recuperation. Candlestick. <laughs> no. Cervical. Her, her recu- no, her like. Palm tree? Her process of recovery, okay. recovery process, just her like, no, that's not even what I'm trying to think. I'm so tired. Her, the way she Recoup. tried to move on, the way she tried yeah. to sort of handle and deal with this issue. Yeah. Was she tried to not think of them. She tried to actively kind of move on with her life. John, her husband, thought of them often. In fact, on the day of their death, he actually had a vision of the girls in heaven. Mm. And he said he felt their presence at the top room of their house. So he would go up and he would he would be with the energy and spirits or whatnot. He said it felt like God was punishing him because he asked for God to prove that there was reincarnation and so this was part of God's punishment to him. We Catholics. Guilt. Yeah. What a f- strange response from God. Truly. Well, have you heard the story of Job? God's kind of an ass. Apparently. Um, so what I think was interesting, though, is that at the same time John felt like it was a punishment, he was also praying that his girls would come back to him. Yeah. His girls would be reincarnated. So... Florence did not love this idea. She wanted to move on and, you know, continue with her life. And so their marriage was on the rocks. They had a really tough go, which I think any family who's that loses lost, kids for sure. For sure. So she fought in 1958. This was May 1957. In 1958, Florence finds out she's pregnant. Great. She's pregnant. Presumably. Great. So she goes to the doctor. The doctor hears one heartbeat, palpitations. The doctor says, one kid, no problem. John, her husband, goes, uh-uh-uh-uh. There's twin girls in there. I know it. Whoa, John. I know it. And they're going to be our reincarnated set of our Our girls. daughters. Yes. So the doctor only heard one heartbeat. There's no history of twins on either side of the family. Lo and behold, two girls were born October 4th, 1958, Jillian and Jennifer. John, you nailed it. John nailed it on the head. John, Jilly, and Jennifer. Cute fam. Cutie. One so, of the brothers' names now. They never mentioned the brothers. Joey and John. <laughs> Junior. John, Junior, Joey. John, Junior, Joey. They love a lot of J names. Jillian, Jennifer, mm-hmm. Jackie, Joanna. Woo! So the girls are born, Jillian and Jennifer. Jennifer had a couple birthmarks. So the two girls are identical twins. However, one of the daughters has a couple of birthmarks. <gasps> Jennifer. Don't tell me. 
has a birthmark where Jacqueline's scar was at the top of her eye where she fell in a bucket. Yes, she does. And Bucket she fall. also has the same birthmark on her waist. On her waist. That dark, that dark birthmark. And these two, they did a blood test. They are split from the same zygote. So they are identical twins. So they can't sort of, they can't describe or they can't justify why the birthmark exists in one and not the other. Is that so that identicals wouldn't have a different birthmark? I think so. I don't know. This is in the 50s. I dated identical twins in seventh grade, not to brag, but I could definitely tell them apart. How dare you say not to brag when that clearly was a brag? It's a huge brag. Could you tell them apart? I could. Interesting. And one was my first kiss and one was my second kiss. Oh. Then I went back to the first again. I had crushes on twins. And then I got older and I was like, they're kind of, they were mean to me. Why did I like them? Right. <laughs> sort of. Well, how old were you? It's actually about 30. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it, was it was last month. It was, it's my ex. No, I'm just kidding. Um. So the newspaper covered this, and then it got this guy, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who's a psychologist on the case as well. And so he sort of tracked these girls, their lives. Um, and so some peculiar things started happening. At three years old, the um, the parents brought out old toys that Joanna and Jacqueline had. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the toys were brought out, Jillian claimed the doll that was Joanna and Jennifer claimed the doll that was Jacqueline. And if we remember, the birthmark is the birthmark lines up is with lines that. Up. Yeah, got it. And so both girls go, Santa, thank you so much for these. Even though Santa did not bring them, they knew their parents brought out. But the girls, they did receive those gifts from Santa. Jillian saw a clothes, a toy clothes ringer. I don't know what that is. A clothes um, ringer. I don't know what that is. But oh. um, she said, you think it's like the washboard? Right? Possibly. That's what I it's thought. It's a shitty toy, man. Who knows? We but all smart love Play-Doh, you, your you know? Play- You're right. Um, and so she goes, there's my toy ringer from Santa. She immediately identified it. They also had a bunch of dolls and stuffed animals, and they knew all the names that their deceased siblings had named them. That is bananas crazy. That's so wild. So crazy. It gets worse, actually. Worse, better? I don't worse, know. Worse, better? I, you know what? I like it. So Florence, the mother, would overhear Jillian and Jennifer discussing details of their accident. What? So she came across Jillian cradling Jennifer's head saying, the blood's coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. And they were not. I think it's difficult with this, and I'll get into this Hmm. later. It's challenging because it's parents and parents of the kids and one who believes so profoundly that reincarnation does exist. So it's hard to know what it it is. It makes you wonder what kinds of things were ever said in front of them. Exactly. Or that they overheard. Exactly. But there were certain things that were bizarre as well. So she says that's where the car hit you and then john said later that when he had to identify the girls that were hit by a car that jacqueline had a bandage over her eyes mm. and i don't think that's something you would bring up in front of your kids not unless you wanted so badly for them to be the be reincarnated that. souls yeah. the one thing that i feel aids in this case is that florence is not a believer in reincarnation 
right? Huh. She's this is something that's convincing her as she continues. Okay. So Jillian then goes over to Jennifer's birthmark over her eye and she says, "That's where you fell on a bucket." Everyone's fallen on buckets. But she knew that that's how Jacqueline had gotten that scar. Oh. And so she's able to. Yeah. See, I, I definitely think the parents said that in front of them. Because you can okay. see where you might not talk about the injuries that killed the daughters in front of children. But you could see where they talk about the scar and mm. argue about it or something. Where yeah. the dad's like, that's the scar she had from the bucket. And like, you can see that being. I'm and here's listening. the thing. Let me just say, I believe in reincarnation. But. I don't believe in God. I'm mm-hmm. an atheist. So the whole like John praying to God and asking for things, uh, that's Could tricky do without. for me. Could do without. Fair. So then Florence, when she was working for the milk and grocery delivery stuff, she had a smock that she wore. And when Jacqueline and Joanna died, she put that smock away. She didn't wear it. And she was no longer working for the milk delivery when the girls died. And she had the twins because they had their undivided attention. Got it. Versus the maternal grandmother who was watching the two deceased sisters. Yeah. So John pulled out the smock to paint something, right, just as something to cover himself. And Jennifer, the older, said, why are you wearing mommy's coat? Mm. She she knew her mom wore it when she was working as milk deliveries, and she told John that. She goes, she wore that for milk deliveries. Jillian did not recognize it, but she was also younger of the two, right? Got it. But she was able to say, that's mommy's coat. And I say mommy like that because it's England, and they said, mommy. Um, that's mommy's coat. So the girls moved at nine months away from one of their homes, but apparently when they returned at four, they knew exactly where to go to get to a park. They could find location-wise exactly where they go. They recognized their school. They would refer to schooling, even though they were too young and they had not gone through the schooling Mm -hmm. system. So there were a lot of things like that. They would say, we've done this before, um, and they had never done, but their deceased siblings had. Um, They had other similarities. They had behavioral similarities. So Joanna, the older of the two, of the first sisters... She was the mother, and she would take care of Jacqueline. And similarly, Jillian would take care of Jennifer. She also, Jillian was also interested in costumes and would put on plays just like her older sister. And similarly to both of the girls, Jillian and Jennifer love to comb hair, especially well, their who fathers. doesn't? I mean. Who doesn't love a hair? But this was an interesting. They had an intense phobia of cars, the twins. Right. So they were very cautious and careful when crossing the street, which, again, I can understand that the mother probably can breed that into him. You can gauge when your family's anxious. Yes. But some of it feels very explainable and some of it not, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the birthmarks are just no, totally. crazy. When an engine would rev, they would scream and yell, the car, the car, it's coming for us. Well, that's distracting. <laughs> also, as a parent, you got to be like, holy shit, I don't love that. Mm. So when Jacqueline died, she was learning to write and she would do that thing where, oh, you were just teaching Koa how to do this. Yeah. But she would hold her fist and so she was struggling with the penmanship thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the twins started writing, 
Jennifer would hold it exactly like Jillian and even into her adult years, she would still switch like Jillian did. Mm. Or, yeah, like um or like um Jacqueline did. Joanna was slender, Jillian was slender, Jacqueline was a little bit stockier, Jennifer was stockier. So they are similar body types. Similar body types. Joe had even a, though they were identical twins. Exactly. Joe had a more splay foot gait compared to Jacqueline, and it was the same as the tints. Just like physical appearance, demeanor actions, personality, it was a direct comparison to mm-hmm. their sisters. And it was consistent, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of theories about whether they it was maternal imprinting when they were in the room, when they were in the womb, whether it was paternal imprinting when they were out. You know, they don't know. However, as the twins got older, they forgot about their past life memories. Well, they also outgrew them, right? Yeah. In the sense that... It became their real life because they were outliving the age that their sisters died at. So they were truly present, I guess you could say. Totally. So at five, it faded. They only found out that John believed in, their father believed in reincarnations at 13. But they led very normal lives. Um, The parents did end up leaving the Catholic Church in the 60s, which, you know, it doesn't support reincarnation. That's big part of their lives i don't blame them for huge part leaving. of their lives at this point they're walking proof sticks <laughs> they're walking proof skis so they accepted their parents belief of what they told them as kids and that they were really reincarnated siblings i mean they were mildly skeptical of yeah. it i think as anyone would be um also my heart just goes out to them because what a tough shoe to fill right yeah. well yeah I think it's probably hard on any kid that's born into a family where their parents have lost kids. But this in particular, you do feel like the dad wanted it so bad. He probably saw things that weren't there or were even a little bit there. And it also is the happiest way to deal with it, right? Yeah. It's like we didn't lose anybody. Now we have these new kids that are sort of our old kids. Yeah. It's... uh. I mean, more power it's to like them, really. You're sort of like, prophecy, right? yeah, I wouldn't even think that as, if, as long as the kids feel, felt happy, felt loved, I don't even know if it's that unhealthy. I mean. Interesting. I, I don't, don't know. know. I think, I just think to be compared to any, to not be like your own autonomous person. Anyway, there's more, there's more coming at you. Whoa. Not too much. But in 1981, so the twins forgot a lot of their faded memories. Jillian had visions which she described herself playing in the sandpit with her brothers as a kid. And she perfectly described the house, garden, lawn, and orchards that match the house in Wickham. So one of their first houses that the two other girls had been there, she had never been there. Right. But she was having visions where, similar to like the location thing, she was able to piece together exactly what it looked like, even though she had never set foot there. I have stuff like that. I have memories that, like, when I was little, I told my mom and she couldn't make heads or tails of. Same. I want to know I yours. Think that's really normal. I would, would. And I don't know where it comes from, but I think it might even come from kids that can't process dreams. I, but see, I had a weird thing. My sister can attest to this. We shared a room and she said I would speak in Spanish in my sleep and I'm not Spanish and I didn't have a Spanish speaker in the house. Yeah. I also would say things like, is it the first day of the evening? And I would say, I would talk about my other mom a lot to my mom. Yeah. I would say things and my, I, it, my siblings didn't say it. I don't think they talked about their past life, but I made a point 
to talk about my past life with my mom. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel, it, it just rings like kids do a lot of weird stuff and they say a lot of weird stuff and they're trying to process the world and they see a thing and try to make sense of it. And in their head, it's almost like a waking dream. Uh, where sometimes Ko will say a thing out loud and will be like, whoa, what a weird way to have processed that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's not abnormal because most people you meet will have some sort of story about remembering a past life, but it'll always be when they were a kid. And you can't totally separate what's real and what's not. And you have ideas about how the world works that aren't true. Mm. that feel just as real as how the world does work. Yeah. And then when you go to try to communicate that to an adult, I think it gets jumbled and the adult hangs on to it in a different way and tries to make sense of it with their adult brain. And it doesn't translate. I can't speak to you, you know, knowing Span. You didn't watch Dora the Explorer? Come on. That was not... I was not old enough. I'm, I'm too old. I think old. of you as so young. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Mochila. Do you think of me as so old? No. I think of you <sighs> as my peer. Am I wrong in that? Yeah, we're not peers. Okay. And I'm not here, here to make friends. I didn't come here to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say the same fucking thing. For the record. For the record. But I came here to make a fucking podcast. I came here to make a fucking so podcast. Get no, to the point. I get to the point. I just think it's interesting some kids speak more. Maybe, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm definitely, I, my siblings are still very creative and in their own right and everything. I just, the Spanish, and I've always been better at Spanish than I should be, I think. Like, I have only taken high school Spanish, but I, it's come fairly easily to me, and I can still, I'm not good at it. I'm not fluent by any means. But you but think I can you hold, spoke Spanish in another life. But there's something about it. I mean, I believe in reincarnation. Maybe you did. And my, I did find out I'm, recently that I'm a little bit Spanish. So nailed it. Oh, how? what percent? It's Well, I don't. I want to be very clear. I have not done the DNA test or 23andMe. My mom and dad have done it. And then I've just synthesized their results. Because if they got it, then I got it. Right. Little Jewish, little, little I like Spanish. Your DIY DNA. I'm not. DIY DNA. DIY BRB, DNA. LOL. I'm not going to spend $100 when I got mom and dad. Great. Great. I got half of all of them. Well, Carrie and I uh, signed up to go to a really cool talk this week that was about DNA and how it's being used to uh, put people behind bars like our good friend. Uh, Sacramento. The, uh, the Golden State Killer. Golden State, yeah. I like to call him a Golden State Rapist because he's a fucking monster. Well, he's also the. He's the worst. He also the e- East Area Rapist. East Area Rapist. East Area Rapist. He's the East Area Rapist and he's the Golden State Killer. And he's the original Night Stalker. Ugh, I hate him. I hate him so much. I hate him. I hate him, hate him, hate him, hate him, hate him. What was I going to say? So anyway, so just to wrap it up, a lot of people use the Pollock twins as as proof that whether reincarnation exists. And this has been this a is conversation. The proof. This is the proof. I mean, and, and you can't ever prove anything like that. No. But I do think there, I do think there are just crazy similarities. I think to me the most jarring is, and regardless if that their father fucking coached them, I'm grateful that they don't have any memory of it unless it's unless like the very repressed memories. But to walk in on your children, saying this is where the car hit you, you're bleeding from your eyes, and as a mother to find that, I mean, yikes, 
totally yikes. But it just, it's just sort of like your two-year-old just repeating to you over and over again, I, I want to die. die. I want to die. Exactly. What also, do you, I, I was like, is there an adult person inside of you? <laughs> it did feel that way. Maybe that's... But he just draw. Nope, he wanted to draw. He just wanted to draw. The other thing is I looked at the video, the pictures of the twins, some of them, and they look like the twins from The Shining. No. A Are they bit. wearing blue dresses? No, but they have that, like, stupid 50s, 60s collar. Oh, yeah. Did they dress them the same? Yes. I do not like it when people do that. My brother has twins. He hates it. Don't do that. He does not. like. He likes them to have different clothes, which yeah, I... You can tell them apart quicker, and too. And sometimes... And you know what? Sometimes they're going to be in the same clothes because... You're you know tired. What? You're tired. You put in whatever the fuck they have, and they're really cute. But he doesn't like to put them in the same outfit, which I fully support my brother on. No, that. let them have their own thing. Let them have their own identity. And they have their own let birthday. Let be one seventh grade girl's first kiss and that same seventh grade girl's second kiss. Wait a minute. Is that what I have to look forward to for my nephews? Should I be like, one of you is going to get the first kiss, one of you is going to get sloppy seconds? Yep, I said it. Sloppy seconds. Whatever. Kids. They should be so lucky. They would be thrilled. They would be th- I'd be thrilled if both of them made out with a Quinn type seventh grade. Oh my god. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's honestly my pleasure. You ready for my story? Uh yeah, sure. Okay. It's a real doozy. Is it now? Yeah. I just got excited. I got excited. Gonna pull up the story. Totally pull up the silly little story. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm really gonna do this. Here we go. This story is brought to you by Wikipedia. There's a really good town and country article I read by Caitlin Menza. Thank you, Caitlin. Good work. And the I also watched an ABC special called Truth and Lies. And I got some stuff from appnews.com and cnbc.com. Great. I am, repu- mine were all like sci yeah. encyclopedia. With paranormal, there's Well, what are can't... they going to write? CBS is going to write an article on reincarnation? In the Doubtful. 50s? No. Nope. No. Guess what I'm doing. Okay. Wait. Did you name any... St- wait, 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 wait. I don't know why I'm making you guess. That's so weird. It's not possible that you would guess. It's a story about siblings. Really? Yeah. Themes, right? Seriously, how do we do this every fuck? Because I was going to do somebody else, and I didn't. Themes. We love themes. How do we do this every fucking time? Well, we've done it again. We did it once. We'll do it again. We'll do it before. We'll do it once more. <laughs> I've said it once. I'll say it before. I'm doing the Menendez brothers. <gasps> no! The Menendez brothers. Oh, brother. Oh, Jesus. Oh, brothers. Oh, brothers. oh Menendez brothers. Were they twins? No. Did you kiss one and then the other? Never <laughs> would I ever. <laughs> Okay, so let's start at the beginning, the very best place to start. Jose Enrique Menendez, the patriarch of the family, was born in 1944 in Havana, Cuba. And he moved to the U.S. when he was 16. And he went to Southern Illinois University and met his lovely wife. He met his soon-to-be wife, Mary Louise Anderson, who everyone just called Kitty. And she was a beauty queen. She was really cute. 
Uh, they got married in 63, and they moved to New York City, where Jose got an accounting degree at Queens College. And then in 68, five years after they were married, she has the first of two sons, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who went by Lyle, his middle name. And then they moved to New Jersey, and they had a second son, Eric, in 1970. So they live in Hopewell Township, uh, Mercer County, New Jersey, which is, from what I could tell, fancy. And both of the boys went to Princeton Day School, which sounds fancy. Sounds bougie. Yeah, it felt very, like, she could have been, like, a real housewife, probably. Because she was pretty and lived in a pretty place with Richie's. Who do you think she'd be best friends with? Teresa? Caroline or Jacqueline? Jacqueline, for sure. I, I like to say Jacqueline. Oh, Jacqueline. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> That's okay. So, ooh, I just burped into the microphone. I'm so sorry. In 1986, Jose's career as a corporate executive took the family to move to Calabasas, California. Ugh. And so then the following year after that, uh, Eric started attending school where he got whatever average grades. I think the weirdness of the grade situation with both boys was that the parents cared a lot. They were, again, in fancy town community, and they cared a lot how people perceived their family. They wanted everything to look nice. So uh. I think they did their kids' homework so that it would be perfect. Wait, and then the result of doing your kids' homework and getting it perfect is that then the kids take tests. And fail. Yeah. And don't do very well on the test. Did your parents ever do your homework? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, 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 Mine no. didn't. My grandma one time forged a family tree, but that was my grandma. She's a perfectionist and she was crazy. She's crazy. But I would be one of those moms that was just like, we didn't, like, he didn't do his homework. Yeah. My parents would we not. We had better things to do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't <laughs> care about that. Like, I, you know what I mean? I'm, I don't really like the whole homework thing. But you did say in a previous podcast that the reason why your son is going to have homework is so that you could learn about it again because oh, you missed it the yes, first yes, time. Yes, all accurate, all true. But I'd you know I'd happily just even help him study for a quiz. I don't like homework because I feel like I want to go take Co to do cool shit after school. I don't want him to have to like do more school after school. That's fair. That's I fair. got a lot of problems with the whole system. Boy, his teachers are going to love me, <laughs> uh, just like they loved. These guys, the Menendez family, because they would, like, send their kids to school in limos to show off. It was not chill. Eric was super good at tennis. He ranked 44th in the nation for 18 and under players. Good for him. So not great at school. Really good athlete. But I think being raised in a house... Well, we'll, we'll get into more about what I think went on in that house. But I will say that in watching Truth and Lies, some interesting stuff came to light. Like, a friend was describing that he would go into... When they were high schoolers, whatever, he would go into a store and if the clerk didn't pay attention to him, he would jump up on the table and throw things and be like, hey, I'm trying to buy stuff here. Ooh, so. Yeah, not. Yeah. The face you're making is exactly right. Just it's like, oh, God. Not. No, not pleasant. Okay. Not a kind person. They're not contributing much to society. So speaking of. <laughs> They are a classic story of sort of rich kids that got bored and they started breaking into homes in their community. Lyle sort of did it first. He's the older brother and he wanted to 
kind of like just prove he could. From what I understand, the first time he did it, he didn't even take anything. It was sort of just a conquest, right, of Mm. can I break in? And then Eric heard from him that he did this and copied it. And pretty soon they started doing this together a little bit more regularly with other friends. But they were in this rich community. So I think they were just breaking into people that they kind of knew. Peripheral. So like their friends' parents' houses. I mean, a break-in is a break-in is a break-in. I mean, it was a break-in. It wasn't I, like a prank. It's not like someone's teeping their friend's house. With they were stealing hundreds of thousands oh of dollars of things. It was not, let's take that guy's pack of cigarettes because we're troubled teens. It was heavy-duty theft. Okay. So they get caught, of course, and arrested. Their dad, Jose, sort of his way of solving that was doing their homework. He went to the people's houses that they robbed. And he would say, how much do you think it was worth, the stuff they took, and just cut checks and sort of be like, let's put this thing to bed. God, my parents would never do that. Right. And that's why, spoiler alert, I don't kill my parents. No, she never does do that, Carrie. She never does kill her parents. Never going to do that. Uh, Spoiler alert. So Lyle enrolls at Princeton University, but during his freshman year, He's placed on academic probation for shitty grades and attendance, and then he's suspended. Uh, I think because he plagiarized something. At a certain point, the parents kind of make it known that they feel like their kids are disappointments. Oh, God. And they felt like Lyle had become a womanizer and a playboy and that he was just spending money and not trying to make anything of himself. They took his credit cards away. He steals them back. Eric, Eric was hard to say. I think, oh, I'm editorializing as huge, but it's Hmm. my feeling that the mom thought, or maybe they both did. I think they thought Eric was gay and they weren't into it. Eric says he's not gay for the record. Let the record show this is, Eric is into writing and he ends up writing a screenplay and he keeps kind of giving it to his friends to read a friend of his I think it was a couple people he showed and it's the story of a kid that murders his parents for their life insurance money or something wait it's a story that he wrote he writes it's it's like a screenplay he wrote and it's about the main story is a kid that kills his parents for the insurance their insurance money my god while this is all going, Jose and Kitty's relationship is also a little bit fluctuating. He is, it's reported he's abusive to her and he definitely cheats on her. It's a, you said it's a toxic household. I think that is just the best way to describe it. At one point, the family dog kills the family ferret. So it's not even just the humans that are having trouble in <laughs> interacting. So then the boys get home and they look in the fridge and the family dog head is in the fridge. Like what? I think Jose decapitated the dog. This is in the movie, Truth and Lies. Is this a truth or a lie? <laughs> I'm telling you two truths and a lie. <laughs> two truths and a lie. The movie's Menendez called brother. Two Truths and a Lie. <laughs> and it reveals that there's a dog head in the fridge, but that was the lie. <laughs> I, Everything I'm, else true. I am regurgitating a thing that the movie said happened. And even as it said it happened, they didn't make a very big deal of it. And so I was like, 
Yeah, this is just a part of it. This is crazy. Or is it a neighbor being like, I heard. But also. Should have paid more attention to that part, admittedly. Because now I'm really interested. Here's the question, though. In my own story. How do you feel about a ferret? Um, I wouldn't kill a dog that killed a ferret, if that's the question. I wouldn't do that. That's not the math on that for me. Also, ferrets. I can't. I can't get behind them. I can't. Who can carrot? No. I say no. no. Okay, just trying things <laughs> she tried, out. Folks. Just trying. <laughs> just kidding. So no, lol. That was so funny. I support yes and no. I'm, we're not. We're not going there. <laughs> no, but the parents also told the kids at some point that they're going to take them out of the will. That was out in the open. They were constantly telling them, "You're not going to be in the will." A neighbor, a friend of Kitty's, is there at one point at the house and says to Kitty, "What are you doing?" She's on the computer. She said, "Well, I'm taking." Eric out of the will or Lyle out of the will. She says, I think it was Lyle. He can hear you. She said, I don't care if he hears me. So there was a lot of nasty, (laughs) nasty, nasty. On August 18th, 1989, Eric is 18 now. Lyle is 21. And they go purchase some shotguns at a big five sporting goods chain store in San Diego, which is, I don't know, like 100 miles from... Where their family lives. Their family now lives in Beverly Hills. On August 19th, the next day, their parents chartered a yacht, as you do, and took the boys shark fishing. Also, as you do. But they cut, and then they cut off the heads of the sharks and put them in the fridge. Nope. Didn't. (laughs) That part I'm lying about. That was a lie. So they did go shark fishing. They went shark. I mean, I'm afraid of sharks. That's illegal. But that does sound, maybe this is the 89. This was after Jaws. People were scared. People didn't know what was going on. They hated sharks. Also, this feels like very mixed. I'm just seeing a lot of mixed messages. We're taking out of the will. You're the worst. We're doing your homework for you. We're cleaning up your mess. We're like a snowplow parent, you know? Right. Well. But also creating their own mess. I don't want to say. Listen, they did not have it coming because I know what's happening. But the mess gets crazy because the day after shark fishing, they burst into the den of their home and they discharge 15 shots into their parents while the couple was watching television on the couch. So Eric fired first. shots? Yes, 15 shots. Eric fired first, but Lyle's bullet went into his father's head. Oh, my God. Is that Matt? I'm texting. What is going on upstairs? No more stamping. (laughs) The mother I always wanted to be. Okay, sorry. Moving on. Wait. We're going to do this again. Yes. August 20th, the next day, they burst into the den of their parents' home. I thought they were on the 18th. Home. 18th, they buy the shotguns. 19th, shark fishing. 20th, kill they your burst. parents. <laughs> what a full schedule. 15 rounds. No, 15 shots. 15 rounds. I don't even know what that would mean. Can't do that math. Anyway, 15 shots. The couple, Jose and Kitty, are watching TV. Eric shoots first. Lyle's a better shot, presumably, because it's his bullet that goes into his father's head, and then he shoots his mom, Kitty, in the face. We do know that there was a struggle with Kitty, given the crime scene, that she ran, that they had to chase her. No. And it's just a shit show in there. There's blood everywhere. It's a shotgun. There's brain matter everywhere. No. And then... They shoot their parents in the kneecaps to make it look like it was related to 
mob activity. Gangland hits. Listen, this is the problem with someone doing your homework. Shitty job with the crime scene. Oh, I thought that was going to be a thing about me not doing my homework. I was getting ready. I was defensive. The people in the neighborhood heard the shots. But it's Beverly Hills, so no one called the police. Because I think they had a block on it being a real thing. Like, it must be a loud TV. It must be a firecracker. It, It's not bullets. It's not shots ringing out in oh my Beverly God. Hills. It's just it can't happen to us vibe going on everywhere. The boys, which is what they always called them in the trial, by the way, the boys. The boys then drove to a movie theater. No. And bought tickets for Batman because I don't think they were like Dynasty Batman. Yes, alibi time. They changed into unbloody clothes, drove back to the house, and pretended to find them to discover the scene all over again. So Lyle calls 911. Here is my question for you. I have a transcript I can read of the call or I can play the call. I vote play it. Play it? Because I think I just want to hear. Okay. I love community theater as I do. I love a community theater production of It Wasn't Me by the Menendez Brothers. Here's what I'm going to say about it. I got it off Facebook, which we know we can trust. Um, (laughs) But it's from some TV show or something. So what will happen is it'll start the call and then it'll have like dramatic music music. And the call will stop, and then it will go back into the call. In real life, I don't believe there was any dramatic music that got played during the phone call. Is this the same thing with the dog head where you're not going to fact check it? Come on. <laughs> we, we don't have time for facts. A dog may or may not have eaten a ferret, and here's this call. It's going to be two minutes, ladies and gentlemen, so buckle your seatbelts. This is the dramatic music I spoke of. <gasps> These are the videos that pop up on my Facebook. They're like, this is a story. What? Who? Are they still there? Yes. The people? Oh, no. <laughs> were they shot? Hey, Matt, they were... Uh, were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. <laughs> what happened? Hey, Calling them back to say they're there. Hello, this is the police department. Yeah, 
Okay, I want you to come outside. <laughs> okay, come out the front door. I'm gonna my brother. Okay. So. Huh. She is crying, and I don't know if you guys could totally understand what he Maybe was saying because he is as well. crying and crying. Yeah, read the Beverly transcript. Hills emergency. Yes, and the caller says, "Some what's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Somebody killed my parents. Pardon me. Somebody killed my parents. What? Who? Are they still there? Yes, the people who killed them. No, 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 no. Were they shot? Yes, they were shot. Yes, and then he says, Eric, shut up." I have a, and the woman says, I have a hysterical person on the phone. Is the person still there? Caller says, well, Lyle says, I don't think so. She says, what happened? Have you been able to figure out what happened? Caller keeps sobbing. Who shot who? I don't know. I came home and found them. You came home and found who shot? My mom and dad. Are they still in the house? The people that did the shooting? Caller just sobbing. The male dispatcher says, let me talk to Eric. There's more sobbing. Who's the person that was shot? My mom and dad. Your mom and dad? My mom and dad. It's okay. Hold on a second. Caller sobbing. Okay, we're on their way over there with an ambulance. Caller sobbing. And then he says something like, I have to go. Yeah. He, le- he to me, that was. The I have to go is always weird uh, on a 911 call, I think. He, well, also, the sobbing feels. Because wouldn't you be so scared that the, I mean, we, it's interesting to listen to it because we know that he's lying. And we know that it's acting. So that makes it that makes it different to listen to. Right. Yeah. Beverly Hills police detective Les Zoller, who has since retired from the force, said he had initially no inkling the brothers might be involved, even though Lyle seemed unusually calm, it said, on the night of the murders. Maybe that's when they got there. Maybe when they got there. Well, when he called him again, the second recording they're calling to say we're here come out of the and house and he feels what maybe i'm projecting cuz i know what happened yeah. but it sounds like he answers and then he has to put it back on is that how you read it or no i don't know it's so hard for me to tell what i would think of that call if i didn't know and i was like trying to close my eyes and just but i think when they got to the house and they took them in or whatever lyle then didn't seem upset he seemed more matter of fact and Zoller, this Beverly Hills police detective, said it struck him as very odd. The issue is that, and we see this happen, this sort of thing a lot, is that the police are responding to these rich kids that live in Beverly Hills. And again, they shot their parents in the knees and stuff. They tried to make it look like a situation that it wasn't. The kids' hands, the kids, they're 18 and 21, but whatever. I don't know what to call them. The boys. The boys. The boys' hands were not tested for gun residue. Their guns were in their car what? at the time. Like, they'd put the guns in their car, I think. They didn't look in their cars or anything. So they were not suspects at all, at all, at all. But what we see happen is the day after the parents die, Lyle right away sees one of his neighbors and asks them for legal advice very calmly which they're presumably in mourning and in shocks, just seemed like a really strange yeah. question right off the bat. Um, and they just spend the next six months living like ballers. At the time their dad died, his fortune was worth $14 million, And they spend in the next six months $700,000. These kids, I don't even know how you could do it. Well, I mean, I actually do know how they did it. Um, on August 24th, the day before his parents' funeral, 
Lyle drops $15,000 on Rolex watches. And I actually saw that part in court and the prosecutor asking about that purchase and him being like, well, we needed to buy stuff to wear to the funeral. And she's like, you needed a gold $9,000 watch to wear to the funeral. It was just bizarre. He was also sitting next to his dad's secretary in the limo when they were leaving the service. And he gestured to his new shoes and said to her, hey, Marzi, who said I couldn't fill my father's shoes? <laughs> um, Lyle? Timing, man. Timing is everything. The community theater of the Menendez boys is not <laughs> off to a great start. No. No. <laughs> They're going to win Razzies. For sure. Or a life sentence. Either or. Right. So then when they're in the limo, he's like talking to someone else in the limo about, do you know where I could score tickets to the U.S. Open? So it's just not what you picture somebody in mourning to behave like. We can't judge how anybody deals with this, but we actually totally can because we know that he's a killer. Yeah. They stayed in super swanky hotels for a while, and then they end up getting some fancy condos on the water in Moran's All Right. Oh, Moran's All Right? Yeah, Moran's All Right. Oh, cool. I said Moran's All Right. Eric buys a Rolex, too. You got to fit in with the bro. He spent thousands of dollars gambling, spent and lost. He hired a tennis coach for $60,000 a year in the hopes of going pro. It's not that much money. I don't know. This was back in the 80s, so 60000 was probably like a million dollars $600,000. And then he leaves UCLA where he had been a student, and he starts practicing up to 10 hours a day, and he flies to the Middle East to compete. It sounds like Lyle's the ringleader. I don't know. I'll be interested to see what your if your opinion on that changes at all. I'm not okay. sure myself what the story with that is, but Lyle returns to Princeton, but not to attend classes. He sort of is chit-chatting, making the friends, trying to get business pursuits underway, and he's shopping. He hires a team of bodyguards to accompany him shopping. Cool. (laughs) That's a vibe. Said like John Oliver. Cool. That's a vibe. (laughs) Um, He buys $40,000 in clothes. He buys a $60,000 Porsche. Uh, Um, It's Porsche. Oh, I'm sorry. How dare. How dare you. My Porsche showing. (laughs) Um, he <laughs> my poor is showing. My poor showing. He liked a restaurant that does sound great called Chuck Spring Street Cafe. So he just, you know, buys it um, for $550,000 and renames it Mr. Buffalo's after the spicy wings they serve. So he's making business decisions. Okay. He wanted to turn that into a franchise. And he said... It was one of my mother's delights that I pursue a small restaurant chain and serve healthy food with friendly service. Oh, Lyle. He told that to a student newspaper person that was interviewing him. Lyle. That restaurant, he was bought under an umbrella of a company called Menendez Investment Enterprises. And he had asked some friends at Princeton to help him oversee and advise his investments, but his general plan was restaurants, real estate, entertainment industry. I'm going to be this rich mogul like my dad. I'm going to have yeah. all this money. His dad was in the entertainment industry, and he's like, I'm going to make this happen for me. Yeah. 
And he also tried to become um, the promoter of a rock concert. All while this is happening, the cops are obviously investigating. And this story about the mob is not panning out. It's just not looking real to them. Yeah, one 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 shot in the kneecap does not a mob make. Mm-mm. At the time, the boys are in therapy, or maybe it's just Eric actually is in therapy. God, I hope they were both in therapy. Either way, Eric for sure is with Dr. Jerome Oziel. O-Z-I-E-L. How would you say that? Oziel? Oziel. Okay. They were not arrested until six months after the murders, but the stress while they were running around spending the money was actually getting to Eric and it was giving him an ulcer. So he actually confesses to, to his, his therapist. therapist. But they can't reveal it in court, right? Because it's well debatable. So he confesses to his therapist. Lyle gets wind of it. Lyle kind of makes some empty, weird threats to the therapist. And the therapist feels creeped. So ends up telling his mistress that this happened and basically saying, obviously, I have the conversations all recorded because you record things in your therapy sessions. Do you record things? I don't think they do that anymore. I don't think mine does. But doesn't that sound like, don't you remember therapists doing that? In the movies, I mean? Like in the movies. Record on on an old tape player? That's what I remember. I so just I think like that's what he sense. does. I think that's what he does. So he tells his mistress, here's where I keep those tapes if anything ever happens to me. She's not loving the sound of that. So she just straight goes to the police. She's like, this is the situation. Lyle Menendez is arrested on March 8th, 1990 in Beverly Hills. Eric's playing tennis in Israel because remember he went to the Middle East mm-hmm. to get that tennis stuff going on. He comes home voluntarily three days later and is arrested on March 11th. The case stalls forever because basically there is a question of what you just said. Is the therapy admissible as evidence? Yeah. And yes, is what they find. And then the attorneys appeal it. And there's this battle basically for the tapes. It drags out for years, 30 months, basically. And... The Supreme Court of California intervenes and they say it is admissible because when Lyle threatened the therapist, he violated doctor-patient privilege. So it was already violated by Lyle. Right. So both of the boys they, like, are invited. They like voided yeah, it. voided that, okay. whatever. Both of the boys are indicted on December 7th, 1992, and they're tried separately for murder. The jury in Eric's case deadlocks January 10th, 1994, and the jury in Lyle's case deadlocks two weeks later. And the judge declares mistrials. <gasps> Don't, I mean, calm down. But <laughs> I'm going to, I'm not going to lead you astray. Let's talk about the mistrials. The initial cases ended in mistrial because of a convincing and very surprising when it was introduced argument from the defense. The defense attorney, uh, Leslie Abramson, and her team contend that Lyle and Eric had been molested by their father since childhood. And Jose is sort of painted to be a cruel perfectionist and Mm -hmm. a pedophile. And Abramson and also the boys on the stand depict a lifetime of 
horrible, relentless sexual assaults that started from childhood and continued into not both their teens, but Eric's. Basically, Lyle claims that his father abused him between the age of six and eight. And then Eric, he started abusing at six as well and never stopped up through the murder. And in fact, Eric will say that his dad, right before they killed him, said, go to your room, presumably to be like, go there and I'm going to rape you. And that's when they killed him. Meanwhile, the mother is painted as a very selfish, mentally unstable alcoholic that was knew about the abuse and turned a blind eye to it. And then Lyle even accuses her of some sort of abuse. He says that he would sleep in a bed with her and touch her. And they were like, where would you touch her? And he said, all over. Ugh. The, there's a cousin that testifies, one of their cousins. She says that she witnessed the boys at age 12 and 15, respectively, argue who got to sleep with their mom, which was super weird. When their dad was out of town, the boys would fight over who got to sleep with their mom. That you, That is a weird thing to see at that age. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and say. I'm going to go ahead and say um, peculiar. And then, you know, you have Kitty's brother saying that the idea that Eric and Lyle were abused by my sister is absolutely insane. You don't, we didn't know these people. We don't know if it sounds right or wrong. We don't. But. This is conflicting for me. Okay. I, Wait for it. Testimony from Lyle includes saying that his dad raped him with objects like a toothbrush and a something from his shaving kit. And then his cousin, Joan Vandermullen, testifies that when Lyle was a little boy, he told her about the abuse and seemed afraid of his father. Oh, and another relative of theirs testifies that Eric told him about being abused when they were 10 and that it stuck with him because he remembers Eric kind of described what would happen and was it felt like he was looking at the other little boy like, this is what happens, right? Like, dads all do this. And then when he was uh, like, no, that doesn't happen, Eric got super upset and was sort of like, don't ever tell anybody I told you that because he was also really afraid of his father. And then when they were little, this part, because I watched this part of the trial. Yeah. And there's a point where Lyle admits that when they were kids, he took Eric out into the woods behind their house and did the same things to Eric that his dad was doing to them, like raped him with a toothbrush. And he apologizes to Eric in court. And I'm just going to say that watching Lyle say what he did and apologize and watching Eric receive the apology looked super fucking real to me. It did not uh, hearken to what we heard in that phone call, the police call. It didn't feel overdone, and it didn't... It just felt authentic. It felt really authentic. Hmm. That's all I can speak to as far as, like, witnessing it, like, watching it. I was like, whoa, I don't know what to think, but that looked real. That pain and the shame for both of them looked super real. (sighs) So, according to the defense... The brothers banded together in the weeks before the murders to confront Jose and tell him they'd go public with the abuse. Oh, this was weird. One thing that happened that I was kind of the catalyst was that Lyle and his mom got in a fight. And Lyle's mom 
pulled his toupee off. Wait, Lyle had a toupee? Exactly. And that's what Eric thought. And there, Eric saw that and was like, whoa, I didn't even know my brother had a toupee. And then Eric got upset and said something to his brother about not knowing it and then saying this family's just filled with lies. Everything's a lie. And then Eric ended up telling Lyle because of that conversation about the abuse where Lyle probably assumed if the abuse really happened, Lyle would likely have assumed that the abuse stopped just like it did with him. Yeah. So he probably assumed it stopped, found out it didn't. And then the story they tell relative to the defense is we banded together. We had this conversation with Jose about going public. He told us he'd kill us. We went and got shotguns. Then we felt like we were going to die, like we were going to get killed. They feared his retaliation, and they thought there was no other way. But they say they were afraid for their lives. While this is all going on, it's a TV trial. You have to remember, it's like OJ. It was weird fodder for whatever, tabloids for TV. I remember I didn't understand the sketch because I was... um, was like 93 so I was like 10 there was a sketch that was John Malkovich I think was the guest and he came out Saturday Night Live yes yeah Saturday Night Live sketch and John Malkovich was the host and it was um oh I'm gonna forget his name but he had like some bad Rob Schneider okay Rob Schneider and John Malkovich come out and they're wearing pastel sweaters which the boys both wore these sort of crazy easter egg pastel colors to court It was thought that it was because it made them maybe look more innocent, but it definitely was super preppy looks Mm -hmm. like polo shirts under. Yeah. Yeah. J. Crew brights. Yeah. And just walking out in the sweaters got a laugh, you know, like everyone was it was just everyone was watching this trial. So that obviously played a role in what happened during the trial. And then there was this mistrial. April 17th, 1996, there's a third and final jury, and they find the brothers both guilty. This trial was not televised, and the judge in this trial didn't allow any information about the abuse to be presented at all in the trial. That feels like prejudicial, Listen, some jurors said that if they had heard about the abuse, it might have colored their decision differently. I don't know. I mean, mean, it's hearsay, and... The question is, as a judge... In some ways, it's hearsay, but to have to have they, people... corroborated by some that, people. And not saying, like, they told me a week before they killed their parents about the abuse. They told me when they were 10, 10. about the abuse. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll get to what I think when I'm done, but they have to go to jail. So, despite their request to be placed in the same prison, they're separated. But, fun fact... February 2018, Lyle was moved from Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California to San Diego County. They were housed in separate units until April 4th, 2018, and then they were moved into the same housing units. And they had a big reunion, and that was the first time they saw each other, I think, in 22 years or something. Wow. So they had a a little reunion, super emotional. The unit where they were housed was reserved for inmates who agree to participate in educational and rehabilitation programs, which they both do. They are still now serving the rest of their life sentences miles apart. On July 2nd, 1996, Lyle married Anna Erickson at a ceremony attended by 
his defense attorney, Abramson, and his aunt, Marta Menendez. But I'm so sorry to say they were divorced April 1st, 2001, which, by the way, don't get married on April Fool's. Don't get divorced on April Fool's. I just think it's risky. (laughs) Try to not do big (laughs) things on April Fool's. As someone that's been divorced, don't get divorced on April Fool's. You want that shit to be <laughs> You want it certain. real. And this was because Erickson found out Lyle was cheating on her. I don't know much more about that, but I would like to. I guess emotionally cheating. Oh, God. But in 2003. Is that where I need to go? I'm worried with this world out there. Do I need to go start dating prisoners? Um, Should I just I, make some pen If pails? you do, I'm, I'm awfully sorry to tell you that Lyle did remarry a Rebecca Sneed. At the Supermax prison visiting area of Mule Creek State Prison. And they knew each other for 10 years before their engagement. Wait, so are the boys in the same prison right now or no? No. Okay. But they're miles apart. In June of 1999, Eric married Tammy Ruth Sacoman. They had been exchanging letters for six years. And he was at Folsom State Prison. And they got married in the prison waiting room. And their wedding cake was a Twinkie from the vending machine. Sounds cheerful. In a 2005 interview with People magazine, she stated, Not having sex in my life is difficult, but it's not a problem for me. I have to be emotionally attached, and I'm emotionally attached to Eric. My family doesn't understand. When it started to get serious, some of them just threw up their hands. (laughs) (sighs) (laughs) Tammy also stated that she and her daughter drive the 150 miles every week to visit Eric and that her daughter refers to him as her Earth Dad. That's alarming to me because I leads me to believe there's an alien dad in the mix that we don't know or about. Or it could be a heaven dad. Oh! That's definitely what it is. You oh thought it would be an alien dad? Do you like that I was like, Earth Dad? Mars dad. And you were like, nope, Quinn, it's heaven dad. I think it's heaven dad. Oh, that's a much more likely scenario. <laughs> Mars dad. Carrie, thank the you for that. The only explanation you have is alien. <laughs> alien for everything. Um, Eric stated, Tammy's what gets me through. I can't think about the sentence when I do... I do it with great sadness and a primal fear. I break into a cold sweat. It's so frightening. I just haven't come to terms with it. As far as reactions go to what happened to the brothers, there was an interview with Stuart Hart that I read. He's an educational child psychologist and a professor at Indiana University. (gasps) You mean my alma mater, Indiana University? You've been waiting for it. I've been waiting my whole life. So he, this guy also served as an expert defense witness in the trial. So defense witness. He said, I've probably spent 600 to 800 hours on this case. I studied the available records, school, health, crime records that were available, and interviewed teachers, friends, girlfriends, family, extended family, and a coach. When the killings occurred, I think the fairest way to describe it is that they were in a state of great fear, panic, and hopelessness. And surely anger, too. Sexual abuse is very much psychological abuse. In my best judgment, they were in a state where they feared he was going to kill them. Different uh, point of view would be Deputy District Attorney Pamela Bozinich, who was... uh, The prosecutor? Yes. She says she's 100% sure they fabricated their defense. She says, I was told during the trial by the bailiffs that the brothers would high-five each other, particularly after a good day in court 
when they were testifying. They would high-five each other because they pulled it off. Jesus. Um, And then one journalist from the film I watched, a lot of what he said rang very true for me, which is to he kind of floated in the middle. I felt like he said that some stuff read very fake Mm. and that the fear of the parents read fake. The fear that they were in mortal danger read fake, I should say. But the abuse Abuse read true. Okay. He said that it was the difference between watching bad acting and watching trauma. And it just, it felt very different. And one thing I liked that he said was that the Menendez brothers are like a Rorschach. So you either see... What you want to see. You see victims of abuse or you see perpetrators of murder. And I think, hmm, I, I think it's both. I think... That the boys killed their parents for money mm-hmm. and they wanted the money and that it was very easy for them to kill them and feel calloused about it because the abuse was real. But okay. I don't think that it was we were abused and so fuck you. I think that the abuse is what broke them yeah. and turned them into people that could kill and could kill in a way where they were like, let's kill them and take their money because we want the money. But they made their children into monsters. Uh, I think. That's what I think. What do you think? Here's what I think. Don't you know that you're toxic? I was hoping you would say that. I got love what you do. Don't you know that you're toxic? What, what you can't see, dear readers, is Carrie actually pulled a boa constrictor out of her bag That's when she started doing that. That's a for you. How dare you? This oh. one was the air <laughs> flight. toxic? Toxic, she's the air flight. She's the flight attendant and she's also in like this gorgeous nude Swarovski crystal. Ooh. Le- Luke. So you really avoided that. Do you feel like, um, no, you I, just don't want to weigh in. That's okay because no, you no, weren't no, no, there. I, no, because I, that's actually genuinely, that's how I feel. It all feels like, it all feels like such a mess. <laughs> It feels like I I'm I'm inclined to believe your assessment of the matter where maybe death wasn't imminent, um, but abuse sounds like it happened. I'm I'm conflicted as to why the judge didn't allow any of that evidence to come into the court. Well, maybe because I don't know what I, I think also either. Understand that it's like there it's a murder that, trial. These people did murder their parents. And they Truth. did it in a way that was premeditated. Was it first? Were they convicted of first they degree? They bought the guns two days before they killed their yeah. parents. It was not done in a fit of rage. And it was not. And did they live at home still with their parents? Uh, I don't know. I'll take the fifth. Fair. Fair fifth. Fair. Fair fifth. I. What does Larry think? Oof. Did you ask Larry his hot take on the Menendez brothers? No. You know what? He'd be a good person to ask. Dear readers, my father's a criminal defense lawyer. So we can only assume he, I feel like he would think that it was not fair that the abuse was left out of that third trial. Now I'm going to ask him. Yeah, Dear readers, to, to be continued. He's probably just going to say, don't talk about me on the podcast again. <laughs> unless you want me to Menendez you. 
Wait, but that's your not dad, how he talks. Your dad is a guy that left Mamma Mia after three songs in, so for that he'll always have a star spot. <laughs> Mamma Mia, here he goes again. So I gotta bye, go. Bye bye. Get in the car quickly. I'm gonna go. You're gonna stay. <laughs> I'm gonna get the car. I love Larry that story. Larry is one of our uh, biggest fans. One of our yeah. One of our only fans. <laughs> Nearest and probably nearest. one of our only male listeners. <laughs> Ruin also is like I can't stand them. Their voices Talk about are their so shrill all the time. Yeah. <laughs> do we need another glass of wine? Um. Yes. Yeah, I do. Mine's precariously resting on this pillow, so we should probably get off these hot mics. Hey, dear readers, thanks for joining us. And one thing I would ask is. If you could get on Apple and hit those five-star buttons, maybe leave the review, definitely, definitely hit the subscribe and tell one friend, two friends, however many friends you have. You don't need to brag about it, but tell them to listen to your favorite podcast. Truly. Darkly. Creepily. Unless your favorite podcast is Radio Lab, then just tell them to listen to that. That's fine, too. It's a, it's a good podcast. Bye.